This podcast is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Pauly, and their dog Ninja. Hey guys, welcome to episode 230 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. Hey everybody. I'm Jerry. Tracy <laughs> just jumped in there on me. I'm sorry, and I'm Tracy. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> Alright, so here's the deal. This week has been extremely challenging for us. We've had a lot of stuff thrown on our plate that was unexpected. Uh, plus, we have to go out of town for uh, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and uh, had some medical stuff pop up in the family. Anyway, long story short, I did not get a chance to do any uh, research for a completely brand new show tonight. What we are going to do for you is play a bonus episode from our Patreon, which was back in August, on Daniel LaPlante. And trust me, this is one of the weirdest stories you will ever hear. It's got a little bit of of everything in this one. A little bit of true crime, a little bit of paranormal. Uh, It is one hell of a freaky story. (laughs) And if you think you've heard it all, trust me, you haven't, unless you've heard the story. (laughs) Now, also tonight, as usual, we do always put something new on a show if we have to use one of the Patreon episodes. I've got Derek on from Georgia. Derek is a young minister, pastor at his church, and Derek was part of an exorcism. And this story is, wow, wait till you hear it. So this is going to be really cool. Also, not on this episode, but coming up, and this is just kind of cool, I thought anyway, I got to do an interview with John Scott. And John Scott is, was, I should say, a very close friend to Tom Petty. Uh, he wrote a book called Tom Petty and Me. They've been friends for over 40 years. He actually, and Tom Petty actually admitted to this at his very last concert a week before he died, that John Scott was the reason that they made it, that mm-hmm. the record label was getting ready to drop him. And um, John took it upon himself to go out and push the, the, the album. It had been out for eight months already. And uh, the record label had given up on him, and he got it played, and the rest is history, so to speak. But there's some paranormal mixed in there, too. And uh, but that that'll be coming out probably next week. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm excited to do that. So yeah. it, it wasn't something I knew was going to be any paranormal. But if you get a chance to interview somebody who was great friends with Tom Petty, how do you not? Of you know, course, do why that? wouldn't you? And this guy's got stories. He was he he was uh, a promoter and got to uh, know the guys from Leonard Skinner, John Cougar Mellencamp. He tells some awesome John Cougar Mellencamp stories. And but yeah, he's got he met a lot of people including Elton John and uh, a bunch of them that he actually worked for. Yeah, so this guy was something else. I had a blast. Good. All right, Tracy. So first of all, we want to thank all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Thank you all for what you do. Yes, we love you guys. We pray for you every day. We can't thank you enough for protecting our country. And, you know, I know it's hard for you guys not to be home for the holidays, but we're all with you in thoughts and spirits. And, you know, we love you and thank you again for everything you do for us. And uh, 
as as we're recording this, it's actually Thursday the tenth, and this was the start of Hanukkah. So, uh, any of our Jewish listeners out there, happy Hanukkah! Absolutely. Also, like I said, we we can't really talk about uh, this time of holidays without touching on the mental health aspect. Because, like I said, this is a really tough time, even in normal years, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And you throw the COVID and stuff in there, and and it's just crazy. I was just listening to something while ago. It was sports related. Um, Duke basketball decided that they were going to cancel the remainder of their non-conference schedule for the mental health of the players. Yeah. And they brought that up and then brought up the Army-Navy game, talking about how, like, these are college students, and but they've had to be pretty much just sequestered in their dorms all the time, and it's just depression's going up. And, and you know, so when you're talking about 19, 18, 19, 20-year-old kids, and it's really taking a toll on them. So you can imagine if you've already got mental health issues what it could be doing to people. So we just want to let people know we're thinking about you and you know, you've got a place to call home. If you need to talk to somebody, you can call us, you can text us, you can send us uh, messages on Facebook and you can join our group. And if you're already in the group, please do not hesitate to post in there. Uh, I know some people are still shy. I know there's a lot of people that are members of the group and they just don't feel comfortable enough posting. Please post. I promise it will benefit you in the long run. Yeah. You guys keep strong and we're going to get there. I promise you. Um, but if you would rather talk to somebody anonymous, you can call the 800 number at 800-273-8255, or you can text us 741-741, um, and you can get help that way. Again, please don't feel um, bad to reach out to us. That's what we're here for. Tracy, real quick, once again, this episode is brought to you by El Yucateco Hot Sauce. Top 10 of all hot sauce in the United States, number one habanero-based hot sauce. That's true. We found two bottles in Meyer yesterday. We did. We did. So, I mean, as far as two different flavors, they had three, but one of them was out. So they they carry three of the seven flavors there. And we tried the, uh, as usual, and I know it's like an old broken record, but the Chipotle is is literally my favorite. (laughs) And we had tostadas tonight, burritos and tostadas. I actually put some on my tostada. Yeah, that was pretty good. I love tostadas. You could buy those little shells. Yeah, no, you like ate a crap ton of them. Well, I mean, they're little. Well, that's true. I ate like 73. (laughs) You said you could eat a thousand. (laughs) I did say I could eat a thousand of them. <laughs> and now that uh, Taco Bell quit carrying them, so now I got to make them myself. I don't understand why they would quit they... carrying literally everything. I don't I like. get that. Why? No, it's okay because now I was forced to make it myself, and I was well, able that's to put. True. It'd be better. Oh, anyway, you could take a hot sauce on it. It was it was much better. That's very anyway, true. You can get El Yucateco hashtag King of Flavor at most major grocers. Like I said, we found it at Meyer. Walmart carries it. Target carries it. And if not, you can get it at elyucateco.com. And as a bonus. Load up a bunch of stuff in your cart because you're going to put in Hillbilly Horror and get a 10% discount on everything in your cart. Very nice. There you go. Awesome, guys. All right, let's listen to this Daniel LaPlante story. Welcome to the August bonus episode. And I think we have a very unique story to say the least tonight. Great. Nothing better than unique. So, Tracy, you've heard the saying that the truth is stranger than fiction. I absolutely have. This is going to be one of those stories that when I tell you this, you're going to be like, there is no way that this happened. Oh, my gosh. Let's hurry up. And it's a true story, and it's not paranormal. It's not left up for someone's, well, I think this is what happened, or this is 100% factual. Whoa. Legit. 
This is going to be the story of Daniel LaPlante, and it's literally something straight out of a Hollywood horror story. The case of Daniel LaPlante has evolved over the years into something that was almost like an urban legend type status. This is how crazy this story is. It took place uh, between 1986 and 1987, and it's been featured on a bunch of TV shows and stuff like that, so you may have actually, once we get into it, have seen mm-hmm. something on this. So Daniel LaPlante holds a rare prestige in the annals of true crime. It's not for the murders that LaPlante was responsible for, which gave him his fame, but the nightmarish events that happened before the murders. Oh, Nobody was, you know, killed or hurt physically during that time, but it's still what he's going to be most well-known for. Just kind of like Ed Gein, you know, he's kind of known as being a grave robber and stuff yeah. like that. So that's, you know, so that's kind of where LaPlante is. His pre-murder behavior has given him kind of a folk legend status, we'll say. All right. This is a tale of jealousy, delusion, desperation, and definitely misplaced affection, as you'll find, uh, resulting in the loss of three innocent lives. Oh, not good. In addition to the lives that were lost, Daniel LaPlante's responsible for the intense traumatization of several other victims in a series of bizarre acts, which even sound too far-fetched to be fiction. So you ready? Let's yeah. talk a little bit about Daniel to, before we get it into the act, so you can get a taste for him. He was born in 1970 in Townsend, Massachusetts. He suffered a very traumatic childhood, as you could imagine, with all the stuff that he ended up doing. There's not a whole lot that's known about him in regards to specific details of his upbringing. Um, He did have some minor little run-ins with the law and stuff like that as a kid, but uh, a lot of that stuff was kept anonymous because Mm -hmm. he was a teenager. Uh, LaPlante suffered sexual and psychological abuse at the hands of multiple adults in his life. LaPlante's father was an individual who administered the majority of his son's punishments, allegedly tormenting him physically, emotionally, and sexually on a regular basis. Terrible. LaPlante's troubled upbringing affected every aspect of his life. He struggled with school, academically and socially, in addition to being diagnosed with dyslexia from a very early age. He had a few friends throughout his school days, not many, Most of his classmates at North Middlesex High School referred to him as creepy or weird in his early teenage years. Mm. That's why you don't bully people. Yep. This is what ends up happening. All right. They ended up, uh, the school ended up asking LaPlante to go to the school psychologist. Uh, And, you know, mainly because he was having this abnormal behavior and stuff in school and he just had a a real reluctance towards his appearance hygiene and self-improvement so he basically just didn't give a damn about what he looked like or any of that stuff this particular incident though could be the turning point in his life if it wasn't for the tragic circumstances which arose it was here that LaPlante was diagnosed with hyperactivity disorder something which didn't mesh well with all his already deteriorating mental health as a result of his troubled home and school life. So his relationship with the psychiatrist eventually took a dark turn when the psychiatrist made sexual advances towards oh him. Oh my gosh, give me a break. I mean, that's that's horrible. The one, you go into this guy to try to fix a problem. Yeah, and you trust him and to help you, and then he turns around and does stupid shit. And I said earlier he was a psychologist. He was actually a psychiatrist, so I want to correct that. 
So then over the next year, the psychiatrist sexually abused LaPlante during their sessions, something which no doubt would leave a lasting effect on, on somebody, you know. But why didn't he just walk out? I mean, why did he go back? I don't know. But just like his dad before him, this was a gentleman who had been trusted to care for LaPlante, but instead he added another layer of grief to his already painful existence. Yeah. So back in LaPlante in, in his early days, he established himself as, as pretty much just a little small-time petty thief. Mm-hmm. He spent his evenings breaking into people's houses and properties in the towns and area. He would steal their valuables, and as he got a little better at his burglary skills, so did his desire for torment. So by the time he was age 15, he was breaking into people's homes and not only taking their stuff, but also leaving behind items in his wake. So he would also move items around in people's homes in such a way that it was clear someone had entered their property, but not so much that it was immediately obvious. Oh. So eventually he was pretty much invading people's homes purely for the purpose of playing mind games on the owners. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1986, Danny set in motion a series of events which he would be forever known for. This is what we're talking about. The plant had obtained the phone number of a family's address in the local area. Now, it's likely that he burglared the house at some point and somehow retrieved the telephone number. Nobody's really sure. Although this is, like I said, it's just, just a thought. The house belonged to a family of three people. It was a dad and two, two um, daughters. The daughters, Annie Anders and Jessica Anders, both really close in age to him. So mm-hmm. it would make what he what he put it forth in motion would actually make sense because of their ages. So they start to talk to Danny by phone. Danny told him that he was given the number by a friend who went to the same school as them, and that he was a good-looking, athletic blonde. He was well-educated, who lived in the area. Now Annie Anders and Danny Laplante started to really get to know each other because of all these phone calls. Mm -hmm. So they arranged to go out on a date one evening. Now, keep in mind, they didn't know him before these phone calls. Right. So they don't know what he looks like, nothing. They're only going by what he told them. Mm -hmm. Well, when he arrived at at, uh, the Andrew's doorstep, she was shocked to discover that the boy that she'd been talking to on the phone was the exact opposite of what he said that he was. Instead of an athletic jock type... Like she was expecting, her blind date was disheveled, greasy, unkempt, dark hair, not blonde at all, and no attractive features whatsoever, according to her. Well, maybe he just wanted her to get to know him. I get what you're saying, you know, get to know the personality and everything, well, and yeah. then it wouldn't matter as much, but he probably should have told her before he just showed up on the porch and was something completely different than what she thought. Well, You know, maybe, yeah. you, maybe you set the date, and then you come up with, well... I should probably tell you something. Right. You know, I kind of fibbed about the way I look and yeah. all that stuff. But that's not what he did. So anyways, she was nice about it, and she let him take her to a local fair. Okay, good. I did that one time. I, th- I think I told you this story. And God, this is going to sound so bad. But I was talking to a girl online, and it was similar. I didn't know what she looked like or any of this stuff. And she was super, super nice. Mm-hmm. And we talked, and we talked. Uh, for probably a week or so, and there literally was the state fair in town. Mm-hmm. And I asked her if she wanted to go, and she said yes. And then when I went and picked her up, she hadn't lied to me about any way she looked, but she didn't tell me the way she looked either. 
and she literally weighed, I'm not exaggerating, about 600 pounds. Not that I have anything against somebody that's got weight problems, but... All right. Well, they need it, love, too. It, they like the pair. Yeah, but it, it caught me off guard. Yeah. So, but I did I did the exact same thing. I didn't say anything, do anything. We went to the fair, and we walked around, and we had fun, and I won her some stuffed animals and stuff that's like nice. that. That's nice. Well, good. So, that's where you need to be. And we talked a bunch of times. We didn't go out, out like that again, mm-hmm. but... We talked still after uh-huh. and all that stuff. Well, but I good. mean, so I did have a situation that was extremely similar, state fair and everything. So, oh, well, that's funny. I just thought that was interesting. So, anyways, after about an hour together, she started making excuses and said it was time to go. So, she didn't give it the whole night like I did. She gave it like an hour. <laughs> so, it was during their date, though, that Daniel discovered that Annie and Jessica Anders had recently lost their mother to cancer. So the only person left was their father, mm-hmm. and he was in the home taking care of them all alone. He allegedly took a lot of interest regarding the detail of, of Annie's mother's death, much more so than just a simple curiosity. Right. Annie later claimed that it seemed as though Danny was obsessed with the death of her mother, continually questioned on how she felt at the moment she died and how much her mom suffered. Oh, gosh. Keep in mind, they were only together for an hour. So all this oh, yeah, that's was terrible. in the first hour of them being together. Now, I mean, I guess, though, if they'd been talking on the phone, it probably wouldn't exactly the same than if they well, just met, but yeah. still. So, Annie didn't willingly, keep in mind I said willingly, see LaPlante again following this date. However, she would later discover him again under circumstances which we're going to say defy, defy explanation. One evening, Annie and her sister attempted to contact their deceased mother, by performing a seance in the basement. They pretty much just did this just thinking, you know, hey, if something comes out of it, it, it does. If not, you know, who knows? But they wouldn't really didn't have any expectations. However, the same evening, Jessica and Annie received a rhythmic knocking against their bedroom walls as they were sleeping. So amazingly, it appeared as though the girl's seance was actually successful. And in the dead of the night, the two girls spoke to their unseen force as though they were talking to their mother one more time. Mm-hmm. They asked the spirit questions, to which it replied via knocks on the wall. So it seems like the girls had truly uncovered a supernatural force mm-hmm. in their house at this point in time. So this continued for a bunch of different evenings until the knocking became so regularly that it disturbed the girls' sleep. Over time, though, objects in the house began to disappear. Items which were laid out on the table one day would find themselves strewn across the room the next. And the girls then would then come home to find furniture moved from one side of the room to the other. Eventually, Jessica and Annie believed that they were being haunted by a malevolent demon and not the spirit of their mom all along. What was her dad saying about all this? Well, we'll get to that. Oh. The girl's father, Brian Anders. Oh, dang. By the way. (laughs) He thought that the girls were basically just causing the havoc all on their own. Mm Mm-hmm. So... They claimed that they believed they had unknowingly like unleashed a demon or a ghost or something in the house. But the dad just thought that that was absurd. There's no possible way that could be real. Instead, he just kind of liked to dwell on the fact that the daughters were probably emotionally struggling with the death of their mom. And yeah, just trying to find ways to, to make things seem a little more um, easy to deal with, I guess. So one night in January of 87, this strange knocking had begun while Jessica and Annie were alone in in the front room. 
Now, at this point, the constant tapping had become so commonplace that it was driving the girls basically crazy. So this particular evening, though, the noises didn't seem like they were coming from the walls, but rather from the basement. So they go get a kitchen knife. The girls kind of sheepishly make their way towards where they hear this noise at. They creep down below the house into the basement. And they're greeted with a sight that they will not soon forget. Written in blood red on the basement wall was the message, I'm in your room, come and find me. Stop. Holy crap. So the girls run out of the house. Said, hell no, I ain't going back up in my room. And they go to their neighbor's house. And they waited the neighbors for their dad to get home and told them what they found. Of course, dad, again, believing that it's the daughters who are more or less responsible for writing that on the walls, he tells Annie and Jessica to, you know, I'm going to get you some counseling and we're going to help you cope with this and we'll get through all this together with a little bit of help. Several weeks later, a similar incident happened again, but this time even more bizarre results. Again, the girls hear the knocking sounds, but this time they came from behind Annie's bedroom wall. When the two girls entered, again, they were greeted with a message written in blood red on the wall, I'm back, find me if you can. All this aftermath played out the same as before. Dad comes home, blames the girls, and the girls had called him from a neighbor's house to come home. When he did, he marched straight into the home to prove that there was nobody inside. Same old, same old. This time, though, when... Brian, the dad, enters the room, or the house, I should say. He noticed that there had been some disarray, we'll say, Mm -hmm. happened in the house since the neighbor and the girls had left. So the neighbors had already said, "Um, no, there's a bunch of stuff moved around and stuff that wasn't moved around when we were in here before. So then it became apparent that someone had been inside the house. Brian, the girls, and the neighbor had all been elsewhere, so they knew that it was none of them. So mm-hmm. now he's finally on board. Yeah. So Brian goes into Annie's room. He's alone. And there's a message that's painted on the wall that says, marry me. Then on the other side of the room, Brian saw something that he really wasn't expecting. There was a young boy standing there dressed in Brian's deceased wife's <gasps> dress no way he was wearing her makeup Nuh-uh. her dress and a blonde wig and in one of his hands he had a hatchet guess who the young boy was that dude Danny LaPlante so they start getting into a little scuffle they're, they're fighting they're going back and forth Brian says he just remembers being dumbfounded at the way that LaPlante was able to just seemingly disappear from sight without much effort. So he gets away from him and he just disappears. He's like, what the hell? So they call the police. And then police are looking around the house. And later that evening, they found out why LaPlante was able to vanish so suddenly. After discovering that each message had been written in ketchup, local police searched the house for clues of how LaPlante may have been able to access the house in the first place. One officer, he found a hidden crawl space behind a cupboard 
which was built into the wall of Annie Andrews' bedroom. When the officer opened the hatch, he discovered Danny LaPlante curled up inside. Officers removed him, obviously, from the crawl space and put him under arrest. LaPlante had now been removed from the scene, so officers start doing this big detailed uh, investigation and search of the Andrews residence. What they found out was that LaPlante had been living inside the walls of the Andrew home. The passageway where they discovered him to begin with tunneled around to a bunch of different areas of the house. So there were a handful of peepholes that they found throughout where Andrews uh, were spied upon by LaPlante when he wanted to observe them from whichever room he was in. Did they not know about that place, I guess? I don't know. I mean, if they did, they wouldn't have a reason to think about it. Well, no, I would never thought about that. So it became really clear that Danny LaPlante had been pretending to be the ghost of Annie and Jessica's mom in order to torment them. Oh, man. It's believed that Danny was planning on revealing himself to the girls whilst dressed up as their dead mom, whether to generally pass himself off as a spirit or whether to just terrify him remains kind of unknown because he never told anybody. However, it was probably to just mess with him because that's what he's had a history of doing. The fact that he was holding a hatchet in one hand also suggests that Annie and Jessica Andrews made a lucky escape that night. Because mm. he looked like he was ready to do some kind of damage. Wow. And as you'll find out later, coming up like now, he's very capable of that. So for the next year, Danny was placed into a juvenile facility where he remained until October of 1987. So almost immediately upon being released, LaPlante returned to his life of burglary. And during one of the robberies in in November of uh, 1987, he got two handguns from a neighbor's house. On December 1st of 87, LaPlante broke into the Gustafson family home, and that's about a half mile from where he and his family lived. There, he was greeted by pregnant Priscilla Gustafson, 33 years old, and her two young children, Abigail and William. Peter Gustafson, which is Priscilla's husband, he was at work during the time that, that Danny had broke into the house. So Andrew eventually gets home after work, and he is met with one of the most horrifying sights of his life. He found his wife, Priscilla, lying face down on, the, on her bed. Her pillows were pretty much red with blood splatter. She had been raped by Danny LaPlante and then shot multiple times in the head at point-blank range. Oh, my God. Andrew called the police, who then discovered the bodies of Andrew's two children in two different bathtubs. Five-year-old William had been drowned in the upstairs bathroom, while eight-year-old Abigail had endured a similar fate in the downstairs bathroom. God, can you imagine? Nobody really knows what his M.O. was as far as this murder but given the fact that LaPlante's actions progressed rapidly from burglary to full-scale murder when he was in possession of a weapon suggests that he didn't possess the confidence or the physical strength to subdue his victims by hand. So in addition, a handful of items, which double as restraints, were found in the Gustafson household. This prompts the theory that LaPlante forced his way into the residence and kept his victims at gunpoint while he restrained them. He likely killed Priscilla Gustafson, First, to remove the biggest threat, and then he drowned the children one by one. Aww. So it didn't take long, though, for the authorities to kind of link 
this family murder with Danny LaPlante. Immediately went after him to try to apprehend him, but they uh, quickly found out that he had left the area. So, obviously, a manhunt quickly ensued. LaPlante was considered to be armed and incredibly dangerous, as you could imagine, and given his history, there was no telling what lengths he might go to to avoid detection. So, a few towns over from Townsend, LaPlante broke into a woman's home and kidnapped her in her vehicle. So, the woman escaped, but LaPlante was spotted by someone who had seen his photograph on the news, and Danny was then discovered hiding in a dumpster 48 hours after the manhunt had begun. Mm-hmm. So it didn't take too long. First 48, just like on TV. Mm -hmm. When he was inspected, a hair belonging to Abigail Gustafson was discovered on his sock, cementing his involvement in the murder. So a year later, LaPlante was sentenced to three life sentences for the murder of the Gustafson family. Now, since he was put in jail, Danny has shown little remorse for his actions. While clearly suffering from a multitude of personality disorders, LaPlante continues to show that he is broken way beyond repair. From the years of 1988 to 2014, he attempted to sue the courts multiple times for violations of his rights. In one case, he claimed that the prison system violated his religious rights as he was allegedly a practicing Satanist. Therefore, LaPlante claimed that he required sufficient materials in order to carry out certain satanic rights, but had been denied that by prison officials. <laughs> nice try, buddy. Remember we had that before with, uh, was it Charles Manson? Probably. I think it was Charles Manson at one point in time, or in one of the one of the stories we told, there was a prisoner that required to sacrifice mm-hmm. like a goat or chicken, and he was trying to sue the prison for that. But it wasn't, it wasn't LaPlante. How stupid are you? In 2017, however, it seems like Daniel LaPlante might have finally come to terms with the fact that he did something beyond belief. Or he's probably just trying to find a way to get out on parole. So while he was appealing for a reduced sentence, he made this statement. I do not have the words to fully express my profound sorrow, but I am truly sorry for the harm I have caused. From the very essence of who I am, from the depth of my soul, I am sorry. So I guess the question is, is this the words from a man who actually truly regrets what he did? Or is he just trying to be manipulative and trying to find his way out of prison? So fortunately, LaPlante's appeal was denied and will therefore spend the rest of his life in jail with no chance of early release. Good. LaPlante's final victim, Andrew Gustafson, passed away in 2014. So he wasn't around to hear that his family's killer was going to be... Oh, I wonder um, why he passed away. Well, I don't, he, I don't know, because I don't know what his age was. I mean, these crimes took place in 87, so you're looking at 97, 2007, that's almost 30 years. I mean, if he was 30 or 40 years yeah. old, then he would have been 70. So. Wow. Well, I so know. I wonder what happened to uh, the girls and them. I wonder if they stayed there and lived, kept living there. Even well, I'm though. sure they did. I mean, what's the chances of something like that happening again? So anyway, he passed away in 2014, so he wasn't around to hear that um, the man that killed his whole family actually was going to spend the rest of his life in, mm-hmm. in jail. So, however, upon his deathbed, though, Gustafson allegedly claimed, don't ever let him out. He should rot in prison. Wow. So, I don't know. It's a little bit of achievement, I guess, but it seems that uh, Andrew Gustafson got his wish, at least on his deathbed. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy that he that kid's still alive. So anyway, what do you think about that story? That is that is such a messed up story. 
I mean, you know, you almost feel sorry for the kid in the beginning because what a horrible life. I mean, yeah. how horrible is that? He's got a messed up mind. Yeah. So, you know, and, and you hear that all the time when it comes to these serial killers and these, this, you always go back to the childhood and you find yeah. the most demented I mean, it's things. so awful for him. I mean, you feel bad for him because he, he couldn't help the way he was raised. And, you know, and I'm one of these people and I'm as guilty as anybody else that I'll sit there and say, I get so tired of hearing about them blaming their childhood. Mm. But, but when you break it down yeah. and you actually hear all the little things that happen, mm-hmm. then you realize at those ages... That's when your brain is being developed. Yeah. And if you're not seeing anything but warped stuff, I mean, how how do you escape that? Yeah. But still no excuse no, for it's, doing it's, what it's he did. not an excuse, but you can at least semi-understand that yeah. you're not dealing with a completely sane person. Yeah. That's a horrible story. Wow. That's just awful. So, anyways. Yeah. He's got a long time to figure it out and think about it now. Yeah, yeah, he does. Because he was what he was uh, what seventeen back then, mm-hmm. and it's been what thirty years. So he's what, in his forties, almost fifty years old. Yeah, he's basically the same age I am then, because I was seventeen in high mm-hmm. school and I graduated in eighty six. So, mm-hmm. man, movie. Mm. I mean, he's way younger than you, but he's about my age. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Tracy, and I'm knowing why I'm even asking you because I know what you're going to say. Have you ever heard of the hand of glory? Hallelujah. <laughs> that would be way off. Oh, no, I'm not. So maybe you're familiar with um, people who would use these type of, of hands for like magic. Like they would cut off the hands of men that were either hung or sometimes they would use like a a dead child and they would cut their hand off, they would pickle it and dry it and turn it into like a talisman to carry around with them. <laughs> All right, what sicko come up with that? Kind of like the monkey paw. You've probably heard that story, well, the monkey yeah, paw. Okay. Well, and I'm not a nerd, so I've never really played Dungeons and Dragons and games like that and Pathfinder, but... You are a nerd. I'm not a nerd. You are so. You have ink pens in your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> I have to write constantly. <laughs> but anyway, in, in, in games like Dungeons and Dragons, you could actually get these items as part of the, the game because it gave you an extra place to put a magic ring on. So you just, in the game, you would... Oh, stop. That's funny <laughs> and sick. Keep in mind, though, that the Hand of Glory has a long history in folklore, myth, and fact. And it's said to give a lot more sinister powers than just a few fingers in a nerdy role-playing game. Mm -hmm. So it goes back, it dates back to at least the early 1600s. And it was mentioned in grimoires like uh, the Petted Albert, which was in 1722, Compendium Maleficarum which is a manual for witch hunters published in Italy in 1608. Wow. That's a long dang time ago. Yeah, I know. There's all kinds of different ways to create the hand. Um, And depending on how you created it, it would give you different magical properties. But virtually all of them involved severing the hand of the criminal, a hanged criminal, Mm -hmm. or like I said, sometimes the hand of a dead child. So the Petit Albert likely inspired the writings of St. Albertus Magnus, which is what I was thinking all along. (laughs) (laughs) 
But hey, it, I wonder if they came up with a hand that stuck the middle finger up. <laughs> Maybe they did that. I don't even think that that was even a thing back then. The middle finger? It probably wasn't. Oh. I'm sure that's a lot more recent. Oh. I don't think King Arthur was running around flipping, you know, flipping <laughs> off people. <laughs> so anyways, in the in a Petted Albert, they give you a recipe for creating a hand of glory. And it was it was later cited by uh, uh, Grillet de Girvy. I'm sure I butchered that. It's probably de, de Givry in his book, Witchcraft, Magic, and Alchemy. So you take the right or left hand of a felon who was hanging from a gibbet beside a highway, wrap it in part of a funeral pall, and so wrapped, squeeze it well. Then put it into earthenware vessel with zimet, nitra, salt, and long peppers. Is that like Tupperware? It sounds like it. The whole well powdered. Leave it in the vessel for a fortnight. Then take it out and expose it to the full sunlight during the dog days until it becomes quite dry. If the sun is not strong enough, put it in an oven with fern and vervin. What is all that stuff? (laughs) Not a clue. Next, make a kind of candle from the fat of the gibbeted felon. Ooh. Virgin wax, sesame, and pony. And use the hand of glory as a candlestick to hold the candle when lighted. That's a lot of trouble. Now, present-day practitioners might find it difficult to reproduce that recipe at home, as you could probably imagine. Not only is it rare to spot gibbeted felon ripe (laughs) for dissecting, but you'll soon discover that your local grocery store doesn't sell Zimmer Pony either. Mm. Let's go to Bath and Body Works. Yeah. <laughs> got some good fragrances there. In fact, even Jimmet DeGivery was a little unclear on what those two words meant, speculating that pony may have referred to horse manure. <laughs> Damn, man. <laughs> so if you, if you do manage to somehow pony cook poo. up a hand of glory, though, they can be pretty well handy. <laughs> Especially if you're a thief. So the most common account of Hand of Glory's powers suggests that burning a candle gripped in its dead fingers, made from the fat of the hangman man himself, immobilizes anyone in the house or building, or anyone but the, the person who possesses it. So basically, you take this hand, you put a candle in this hand and light it, and while you're doing that, pretty much paralyze everybody in the house. So you just do whatever you want. Dang. That's what it says, anyway. I wonder so how it, long the candle burns. Well, I guess it depends on how long the candle is. Oh. <laughs> maybe it, with flesh and yeah. all that other stuff, maybe. I don't know. It's possible. So in some other versions, though, the hair of the felon could be used as a candle wick and would give light <laughs> only to the holder. <laughs> Other versions claim that the candle unlocks doors or burns brighter when in presence of treasure. So if you get closer to something, it starts brightening up. So you can see how all these could be helpful to thieves. Mm. Ah, (laughs) Sounds like a lot of trouble to me. Get a flashlight. Well, luckily, there's ways to protect from the effects of the Hand of Glory. So according to the Petted Albert, you can render a Hand of Glory ineffective by rubbing the threshold of your doors and windows with an... ointment that was made of the gall of a black cat. The what of a black cat? The gall. What's a gall? 
You know, like, I guess, like the gallbladder. (laughs) I mean, that's the only thing I can think of. (laughs) But once you figure out what gall is, then you have to mix it with fat of a white hen and blood of a screech owl. So I hope you have those things readily available. I have the fat part. (laughs) I can screech like an owl. You are not a white hen. Oh, I thought you said hand. White hand. (laughs) No. So, some modern researchers now think that the notion of the hand of glory entered into the lexicon uh, as kind of a lost in translation thing. Which, when the word uh, mandragora, or the mandrake root, was brought to French as man de la glore, nevertheless, they didn't stop real hands of glories from appearing in English folklore and actual homes. So, it's possible somebody just mispronounced a word like we do all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, it was like, oh, that means a hand of glory. This is what you do. And in reality, they would just mispronounce a word. <laughs> Maybe it's the hand of gory, <laughs> not glory. <laughs> so, English folk history tells that the hand of glory being used in an attempted robbery of the Spittle Inn in North Stainmore in 1797. And what's even funnier than that is there's an actual hand of glory housed in England's Whitby Museum. The hand stands right next to a manuscript from 1823 that adds its own gruesome details on the preparation of the subject. It must be cut off from a body of a criminal on the gibbet, pickled in salt, and the urine of man, woman, dog, horse, and mare, smoked with herbs and hay for a month, hung on an oak tree for three nights running, then laid at a crossroads then hung on the church door for one night while the maker keeps watch on it in the porch. And if it be that no fear hath driven you from the porch, then the hand be true one, and it will be yours. So the, the person watching over it, if he don't get scared and leaves? Yeah, you have to hang it on the, the, the church door and then sit there and watch from the porch. And if you don't get scared away, then it's yours. Then what do you do with it? I don't know. I guess all the other stuff that's... Scratch your butt? You could. That could be... Those could be the first back scratchers. It could be. I'd like to have one of those. Real hand with good nails. Uh, you got me for that. You yeah, don't... You're not available anytime I need you. I do have that back scratcher at work in my desk drawer. Mm-hmm. And I've got one sitting over here that I used to keep beside me that you've now taken over. No, I think I just didn't want to put it back over there. Mm, that's surprising. So anyway, this, this macabre relic was found walled up in a cottage in Castleton in 1935 by a local historian. But according to newspapers like the Bladen Journal and the Express, it's the last genuine article in existence. Wow, that's cool. I guess. I guess. So, anyways, that's the story about the Hand of Glory. But it comes back again every once in a while, like Harry Potter, I think, has yeah. used it, and uh, I think Hellboy... Oh. And the original Hellboy, I think, used it and a bunch of comic strips and stuff like that. So, yeah, they're out there. And that's the history of it. Well, <laughs> are you still recording? Yeah. <laughs> Why would I not be recording? I thought you were done. <laughs> well, I was going to tell you that um, <laughs> on, uh, on No Sleep Podcast that there was this tell that they did because they do all these creepy creepy ass stories on there but they did a hand of glory by this gentleman by the name of colin harker 
but it was about a drug addict who kind of crafted his own hand of glory from um, another person who had asphyxiated. Mm. And obviously, spoiler alert, there's a horrible outcome. Mm. <laughs> so You mean like from sex? No, no, just hit drug use, just ended up oh. choking on his whatever. Vomit. So there's even songs like Raging, uh, Raging Against the Machine has a song that mentions one too. Really? I can't think of what the song is, but yeah. Wow. That's why I was, you know. So clearly the hand of Glory's grip on our, is on our collective imagination, as you can imagine. Anyways, that's all I got. You got any toilet paper? I do not have any toilet paper. What if I got poop? <laughs> Stop. What? We're still recording. Oh, shoot. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. Love you. All right. So thank you guys so much for putting up with our silliness tonight. We're giddy. <laughs> but we really are out of toilet paper. Oh, no. Where's your sock? It's not what that sock's used for. <laughs> That's used for my hand of glory. All right, guys. Thank you so much for all your support. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Well, Tracy, is that not one of the most screwed up stories you've ever heard in your entire life? Yeah, it's pretty messed up. <laughs> it was a lot to take in. All right. So we're going to take a really quick break from our sponsor. And then we will be back with the iTunes reviews and stuff. And then Derek's interview about the possession exorcism case. This one's this one's crazy, too. It's just going to be a whole night of crazy as uh, stories go. <laughs> Tracy, I know you've got some reviews and stuff to get to. Real quick uh, housekeeping note. We decided earlier, and you might have heard from a previous uh, recording that we did a bonus episode, that we are helping a family out this year. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, just like we did last year. But this one is, is a little more than what we could do on our own. So we opened it up for you guys. At the time we're recording this, you guys have already donated $535. Wow, you guys are amazing. Phenomenal. Thank you so much. And I'm going to keep this going uh, for a couple of days after this comes out to try to help them as much as we possibly can. If you want to donate, just go to hillbillyhorrorstories.com. Right on the front page, it says donation. Any dollar amount. So there's no set amount. If you want to do a dollar, do a dollar. If you want to do 50, do 50. We've had everything from a mm-hmm. dollar to 50 so far. Yes. So. You guys are just awesome. We appreciate your love and support. Tracy, what do you got for us? Um, on our iTunes, we have Courtney Henyon. Um, and just remember, we are kind of recording this a little bit early. So if somebody leaves a review after the fact, we'll get you next week. Right. And on our Patreons, we have Julie West, Christopher Chaucey, and Lincoln Rain. Thank you guys so much for your patronage. We really couldn't do it without you. We appreciate everything that you guys do for us. And if you're listening and you're not a Patreon supporter, please remember you get episodes with zero commercials, mm-hmm. including the El Yucateco. We take those out as mm-hmm. well. And then also, um, you get episodes like you're hearing tonight. This is this, you know, we do a listener stories episode and then we do a bunch of mini episodes and then you get a full length one like this every mm-hmm. month. So, all right, let's listen to Derek's interview. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. All right. Let's listen to that. All right. I'm excited about this. We got Derek from Georgia on the phone and uh, even though he's a Georgia Bulldog fan, we're going to let him on anyway. <laughs> Derek, you have got a story that it's kind of interesting in the fact that you've admitted that you're a skeptic and something's happened to you that's made you, I guess, question a few things. I think it's going to be an interesting story for the listeners, so I'm just going to turn it over to you and let you tell everybody 
what happened in this experience. Gotcha. Well, um, Jerry, man, thanks for having me on the show. I started listening to podcasts a couple of years ago. I'm a young guy. I wasn't aware of it when it came out. And, and I caught up on your show very quickly. I listen every week, and so I appreciate you guys and what you do. But so, yeah, so for my story, as I said before, I'm, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. So there's some things that don't necessarily fit within my realm of ideology, I guess you could say. But I love the paranormal. I, I love everything about it. I wish that I could believe in all of it. Um, it would be fantastic if it was true. Some of it, anyway. This story basically starts out with me. I sing a little bit. I'm a musician, and so I'm, I was standing on stage at this church I was attending at the time before the service began. This gentleman came through the door. Now, it, it was more of a traditional church, and so I'm sure you and a lot of the listeners can picture a shotgun-style church with a sanctuary that's long and narrow, right? And so. Yep. Uh, so somebody came through the back doors, and man, it was crazy because as soon as they walked through the back doors, the entire the entire place, the building, just just a hush fell over it. And the closer this gentleman got to the front, the closer this almost like this cold wave was emanating from him. I, I had no idea what was going on. I hadn't felt anything like it in my life, and I haven't since. And this was. 15 years ago. And so there I am. He's walking up and every instinct in my body is telling me that I need to run or, you know, it's kind of that fight or flight moment or I need to step up and talk to this guy. Unfortunately, we live in a world where people carry weapons maliciously. And so I didn't know if that's what I was feeling or what was going on. Sure. But as soon as the guy got close enough to the front of the building, I noticed that I noticed that his eye color was odd. You know, I, I don't know if you've watched some of these shows on TV like Supernatural, but right. they wear the sclera contacts that cover your entire eye. Mm -hmm. Th this wasn't like that. Uh, it was more like their pupil and their iris both were was was black. And so it was like the middle of their eyes was completely black, but you could still see the whites. It was very strange. And so um, basically a couple of people talked to him. And um, interacting with him a little bit, and I just couldn't shake this cold feeling that I was that that was very strong. And so we begin the service as this gentleman is uh, sitting on the front row, <laughs> and um, in the middle of in the middle of the song service, he begins to violently shake. Not like seizure shake. It was more like a vibration thing. Um, I, I couldn't replicate the move if I wanted to. <laughs> and so uh, as this is happening, I notice it from the stage. Uh, there, there's a couple other men up there who notice it as well. And we're not sure what's going on, but, you know, it's kind of one of those the show must go on things. And so we, we keep going, you know, as, as this is happening. And and he begins to make this noise. Um, it, it's kind of hard to describe exactly what it was, but you, you're a musical guy. Actually, you released a music episode about Bad Finger not long ago that I really enjoyed. Um, so maybe you'll know what I'm talking about. When when he he let out this uh, primal sounding yell. Uh, 
but it wasn't, it, it was almost like it was layered. And so, um, it, it was, it was a single, we'll call it a melody. It wasn't, it wasn't melodic at all, but we'll, we'll call it a melody. And then there was a third over it. So like half of a triad. And then there was an inverted fifth on top. And so basically you get this really creepy minor chord and he was primal yelling in this three tiered crazy minor yell. It was, it was so strange. Kind of like, so, um, kind of like the devil's trill. Yeah, absolutely. It was very much like that. <laughs> That's ironic. So, um, <laughs> It was really strange, man. Um, like I, you know, obviously the human voice can't do that. Uh, so, so he gets up and charges <clears throat> where we're standing. Not at one particular person. Um, we, at this point, you know, we think we have something we don't really understand going on. Um, fortunately, I'm a, I'm a big dude. I'm six four. Uh, there's a couple other guys up there that were about my size, and uh, we 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 immediately jumped down. I don't, I'm not sure how we had that quick of a reaction time, but I think I think everyone in the building was already on high alert because of that guy. And so um, as he's rushing the, the stage towards the front, um, we we jump down and meet him. And Jerry, before it was over, he tossed me and he tossed another guy. There were six men who pinned that boy to the ground. And he was not, he was not a large fellow. Okay. Um, so six, six dudes pinned this guy to the ground and he still managed to break out of our, out of our hold. Uh, he, he's talking the whole time. He's cussing up a storm. Um, that wasn't great for the, the kids in the service, you know, in, in the church service there. We're, we're wearing our ties and, and he's over there cursing. And so, you know, that's, that's, that's what it is. But, uh, so he, he goes busting out the side door, um, and actually runs and jumps in the dumpster. So, uh, we're not really sure where to go from there. We called, we called the police. Um, turns out we knew. This, this gentleman's mother, um, that situation was resolved by her coming and coaxing him out of the dumpster. Uh, the police brought an ambulance and took him to the hospital where he uh, showed no symptoms whatsoever. Uh, so the men that, that kind of helped me um, figure out what was going on or, or help me hold him down and uh, then retrieve him. We walked back inside, and the pastor of the church said, um, we know his mom. He lives with his mom, and their husband and dad had died about two years earlier at the time. And so he says uh, that that gentleman was demon-possessed. And now, um, I, I, I'm not afraid to say that I had heard about that in my lifetime. Um, it is a part of, you know, whispered uh, Christian things, particularly the older parts of Christianity. Um, and by older, I mean, um, um, you know, Catholics and, and uh, 
some of the more traditional churches will every once in a while talk about spiritual warfare. A lot of your New Age churches don't do that, but anyway, uh, this, this is what he said. He said um, he's demon-possessed, and, and I, I don't know how the other guys were. At that point, I wasn't paying attention to them. I was blown away. Um, <laughs> You know, I mean that 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 is that is one of those instances where I have no real idea of what to say or do. Um, I'm I'm a pretty uh, pretty planned out, detailed guy, and that that was not part of what I was expecting in that moment in the group. So, as as uh, the pastor spoke and he said, "We're, we're going to um, we're going to pray and fast." Uh, for the next two days. So we actually went without food for two days and prayed. And um, and we met up again on the evening of those two days later. And he said, I need you guys uh, to steal yourselves. You know, the Lord's going to take care of us, but we're, we're going to visit this gentleman's home. Uh, and he hadn't told us the plan. He, he told us when we got to the church there to meet him. He asked us to meet him. And so me and those those six other guys and the pastor, um, we, we loaded up into vehicles and drove over to this guy's house. Uh, we, we got out and, and knocked on the door. The mother of that gentleman opened the door, said, thank you so much, pastor, for coming. And we walked in, and and I, I, it's hard to describe. You've heard of you've heard of a fugue state before, right? Yep. This 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 guy was in a fugue state, but he was kind of almost uh, almost moaning, um, it, it, not in a, not in a good way. It was it was very almost painful to hear. Um, he's sitting on the couch with his head tossed back. His scalp is actually resting against the wall there, and and he's just like zonked out, but he, you can hear him kind of moaning. And so the pastor walks up to him and says, "Hey man, um, we're 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 here to talk with you. Do you mind talking with us?" And immediately that vibration thing happens again, uh, where where he's not jerking around, he's not having a seizure, but his whole entire body as one unit is, is vibrating in place. And, um, that, that, that cold feeling, it's like someone fired a gun, man, that, that cold feeling just immediately filled the room and, uh, his eyes, and this may have been my imagination as part of it, but, but, but his eyes looked like they flashed a little bit. Um, and, and his moan just got louder and that, that, that weird chord came out again. And, uh, he looked up and he looked at that pastor and began to cuss that pastor to heck and back. Um, uh, telling him he wasn't any good and, and, uh, it, it was very odd. So anyway. Um, we, we guys were standing around, you know, we, we kind of feel responsible to some degree, even though we were thrown in this situation, uh, for our pastor, we, we form a semicircle around him that evening as he's talking to this guy. And, um, and, and this, 
this guy is just straight uh, malicious. I, I don't know. I don't know how else to say it. And so uh, he actually gets up from his position uh, because there's no room there between the pastor and he uh, bumps into the pastor. Not hard. It wasn't exactly an attack or anything. Uh, but he, he, he moves out of the way there off the sofa and goes back to his bedroom. The pastor's, you know, right on his heels. This guy looks like he's not afraid of anything. <laughs> I, I, at that point, we, we, we talked about it later only once. We've only talked about it once, but when we talked about it later, um, we, we were all thinking like, God, man, don't, don't go back there. Like, don't follow this guy. Let's go. You know, like, let, let's just leave. And so, um, well, we followed the pastor. Once again, as I said, we kind of felt responsible. Went back to the room. Uh, th- th- this guy has went quiet for a minute, but he's pacing back and forth. Um, uh, and so he begins talking again. And he's talking to one of the other individuals in the room and um, telling them about something that they had, like, done um, in-, in secret and uh and calling him out for it and i don't know exactly what the stimuli was but something happened and this gentleman jumped up and uh i don't know if you're familiar with construction at all jerry um i'm not exactly yeah i'm not i'm not really either but uh you know walls are typically made from uh, uh, studs, right? Yeah, and then drywall over the studs. Well, well, this this guy, like, like he snaps and then he he runs directly towards the wall. Okay, in his bedroom, there's no furniture there. Uh, it's the only bare wall by the door. The door is literally five feet away. Uh, but he, he goes for the wall. Like, I, I don't know, I don't know what, I don't know if it was just a showing out thing, uh, that this, that this demonic entity wanted to do. But anyway, the guy, the guy lowers his head and, and pulls his arms in, uh, not to his side, but in front of him and, uh, close up to his body, like under his chin. And he jumps at the wall and actually busts through the drywall and the insulation in that wall in between two of the studs. I mean, I, I have no idea how he didn't help build that house. Even if he had, he wouldn't remember the exact position of the studs in that wall. But but he made it right through those studs, man. Uh, busted straight through them. There was a man-sized hole in them. Uh, actually, we couldn't fit through it because, uh, you know, we were all big guys. And so he's, he's now running towards the front door. Uh, we all kind of book it out of his bedroom into the living room and following him, pull him down. Uh, because, because, you know, this guy's acting erratic. We don't know what's, what's going to happen next. Um, he still has that strange color in his eye and, um, and is actually, uh, screaming and, 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 the weird, the weird triad still going on, and and so so I mean it's it's very strange, not good. Um, we, we get it down, pulled down to the ground, and the pastor actually begins 
uh, it's not the same as a Catholic exorcism rite. You know, there's not as much, um, I would say, formality to it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but he actually uh, begins to perform what people would consider to be an exorcism rite, I guess. Uh, basically, he's, he's speaking to this gentleman and calling him by name and saying, um, we, we need to talk to you. Um, you know, uh, whoever this demonic entity is, the, the power of Christ compels you. I mean, he's, he's using those lines, you know, and, um, uh, th- this vibration starts back up immediately and this, this demonic entity laughs and, uh, through, through repetition and, and later on after discussing with the pastor through, through fasting, um, eventually, this guy calms down, back down to like his fugue state where we entered the room. And um, the pastor has brought with him a little grape juice and uh, unleavened communion bread. And he makes the sign of the cross on his forehead um, in grape juice and says uh, something along the lines of, um, he quoted a Bible verse and said, that um, some come out only by prayer and fasting. We prayed, we fasted, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit and the power of Christ compels you to leave. The guy's eyes flew open, and immediately, man, it was, I saw it happen. That black went right back to his regular brown. It's like it retracted uh, very quickly into his iris. That's what it looked like anyway. And, and, uh, or into his pupil, and you can see his brown irises again. And, um, and he began to weep. Um, he, he went limp. All the vibrations stuff stopped. His voice was normal. He sounded like a human again. And, um, and he began to weep and just say, thank you, thank you, thank you, you know. Um, we actually all took communion. Uh, we, we then went through a process of just praying over the house and trying to figure out what it was, uh, cause, you know, it's pretty, pretty widely agreed upon that you can invite demonic activity into your life. Um, and so we began to, to seek out whatever was, you know, the cause of that. You know, some people say Ouija boards and that kind of thing, and that's not what was going on in that house, but, um, I just, um, we, we never did really pin something down, but, but we prayed with this guy and, uh, he actually kept coming to church, ended up joining our, joining our faith, which, you know, if, if you go through that kind of harrowing experience, you, you may need, uh, well, I believe <laughs> that you need, you know, some, some, uh, supernatural help in that area anyway. So, um, yeah, man, that's that's my story. Um, I know it's pretty crazy, and I uh, didn't do a fantastic job telling it, but uh, it <laughs> happened. So. I thought you did a fine job of telling it. So I got a couple of quick questions for you. Sure. So when the guy walked into the church, you had not seen this man before. So obviously he wasn't a regular parishioner, even though apparently his mother was either at one point. What do you think brought him into that church that day? Do you think this was him overriding whatever may have been possessing him to try to seek help? Man, you know, I've actually asked myself that question before. Um, I can answer the first part easily. The, the pastor had visited 
the home of the mother and that gentleman before. And so, um, we had never met him, but the pastor had met him before. Um, I don't know if that connection called out, you know, through his haze and allowed him to get there. I don't know if that was a cry for help or if it was, as I said, malicious intent. You know, um, some of these situations uh, that you hear about, I don't know if we can trust all of them, um, but some of them that you hear about, there's there's uh, evil intent involved when it comes to religious icons or people. Um, I don't know if that was what it was. I, 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 don't, I mean, the answer is there's a lot about this that I have no clue about, man, because I've never experienced this since then. I, I'm not a demonologist. Um, I know scripture, but, you know, a lot of people don't put a lot of faith in that either. So I, I, I don't know. All right. So that brings that actually kind of leads me into the, the next question I got. And sure. please don't take this or anybody listening do not take this as any kind of a criticism or a knock because that's not what this is. It's just me asking a legitimate question. You okay. as a, a, a Christian, you've got your beliefs. I'm sure you followed uh, a, a lot of these beliefs strictly from what the Bible says, which is where your statement earlier about you believe in some parts of the paranormal, but your religion really doesn't um, give you the chance to believe in other parts, basically because what it says in the Bible. So, my question is, when it comes to the situation, and, I, and I'm, I'm somebody who was raised a devout Catholic. As my years got on, I've kind of wavered from that. I would consider myself, uh, I believe that there is a God. I don't know that yeah. I necessarily believe that there's, uh, I think there's like one God that everybody sees differently, I guess maybe is mm. my way of, of saying it. So, you know, I but in that way of thinking, I almost think of God in general as paranormal, as, you know, if you believe in angels, if you believe in Satan, if you believe in demonic entities that can overcome somebody, all of that to me is in the same realm of thinking as ghost or poltergeist or something like that. So I guess that's sure. always been my confusing part of a lot of religious beliefs that, you know, I know people that are like they won't consider any point of the paranormal because of their religious beliefs, right. and to me, it it almost seems like similar grounds. And so, I mean, I guess my question to you would be, you know, in your opinion, on your beliefs, how can you believe in some of the stuff but not believe in the other? And you know, what what is the reasoning behind that other than the Bible? And like I said, it's not a criticism. I'm just curious. Sure, man. Um, all right, so I'll start out by saying um, I'm actually a pastor now, um, so I'm, I'm not just a regular parishioner. <laughs> um, I have a little education under my belt and know a little bit about this. And so um, the, the easiest answer for your question that I can give you uh, is that the Bible clearly talks about um, God being the spirit. And so I understand what you're talking about, putting that in the same realm of uh, the the supernatural um, entities and that kind of thing. Um, 
I also have a part of a psychology degree. I think a lot of um, a lot of the paranormal things that we we talk about, uh, a lot of the cryptids, um, that kind of thing. I think even some ghost experiences uh, may may all be um, self induced isn't the exact right word, but you know it's it's. Uh, it's self-inflicted, maybe. Um, That's what you're saying. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't. I'm not trying to put anybody in what they believe down either. Um, but the reason, I mean, the, the easiest answer, the reason that I don't believe in all of it is just that uh, uh, the same way that some people have faith in all things uh, supernatural, paranormal is the way that I put faith into um, the Christianity and, and, and the Bible. Um, I, you know, there's a verse in Scripture in the New Testament that says, those who know the Lord when they close their eyes will be present with Him. Um, that, that leaves very little room in my mind for ghosts. Um, I do obviously believe in demonic Entities, uh, those are talked about in scripture. I've had that experience. I think that a lot of the things at times that people believe are ghosts could be that or some sort of, uh, some sort of reflection or, or like when you toss a rock into a pond, you know, there's little ripples that may be a ripple of something about that. I, I don't know, man. I, I do also believe that places can hold energy, um, of some sort that falls within a uh, gray area <laughs> in Christianity. And so, you know, is it possible? I'm not saying it's not possible. Once again, I'd love to believe it. I'd love to experience it and see it. Um, I'm, I'm hungry to hear about this stuff and, and that kind of thing. But I just, um, until I can have some proof about it, man, it just, it's not really, it's not really part of what I, what I do. And so I don't know if that answers your question. It does. But, it does. Um, cool. So let me ask you this. What do you think happens to the soul when a person dies? What do you think happens from that point on? Do you think it hangs around? Do you take it strictly from the biblical sense of it's just basically gone until judgment day? What, what is your opinion of what happens when someone passes away to their soul from that point on? Sure, man. Um, so I think... <sighs> From what I can gather from scripture, um, I'm pretty traditional in this thought, I guess. Uh, there, there is a couple of different cases or instances that could happen within my, my thinking though. Um, so there's, there's two destinations, uh, heaven and hell. Um, I do think that there's a possibility that when, when a person passes away that they're their soul is um, locked in their body um, until uh, a time that it is it is released, and that releasing would be upon you know call it what you may judgment day, um, um, you know what, what the second coming of Christ, whatever whatever you want to call it, man. That's that's what we'll call it. Um, but that that's one possibility. Um, I personally believe, um, and, and can kind of back it up with, with scripture, 
that um, when we when we leave this world in death, I think that our soul is taken to one of those two locations. Um, I don't think it's been that way for all of eternity, but it is that way now. So um, and that that's a whole nother Bibleology thing, but um, that that's that's my that's what I believe anyway. Um, can I prove that? Absolutely not. Uh, I'm, I'm, am I open to hearing other people talk about it? Absolutely, but that's what I believe. So, all right, I got one more one more question. And your first your first part to that answer is what made me think about this one. What are your okay. thoughts on cremation? Yeah, that's that's a great question, man. Um, I have no problem with that. I, I, you know, a lot of really traditional. Christianity had major problems with it, uh, just because you know there, there's a, a portion of Scripture that talks about um, you know Jesus returning in the air to uh, call his saints away. You know, and people were like, "Well, man, if 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 we're if our bodies are not present for the rapture, how can we be raptured?" Um, I think that's a bunch of hockey, man. If, if if the Son of God's coming back flying through the air, I think, uh, <laughs> hey, if he's going to raise us off from the dead, uh, why, are, why are ashes going to be a problem, right? So, um, yeah, get cremated. Yeah, the only reason I asked that is because the first part of your question said that it's possible, you know, you had two different thoughts on it. One was that you go right where you're going to go from the time of death, and the other one is that you remain in your body. But if you were cremated, you would have no way of remaining in your body. I guess that's why I brought that up. Well, um that that makes sense. Uh, I didn't think of that uh, first off there, but my answer just philosophically would be um, that is still, even though it's been under a chemical change with the heat, uh, that is still what remains of your body, and and perhaps your soul is still in that. Uh, you know, we we've heard lore of people being cremated, and. Um, and their, their spirits being released or, you know, there's tons of stories and fiction and lore and everything out there. Uh, uh, you know, there's, there's one, uh, thing I heard one time where this ghost spoke through someone and said that, you know, their body had been cremated and they were locked in there and, and felt like they were burning. You know, they felt pain and tortured, uh, even in, in that first portion of their afterlife. Um, you know, I don't know. I think personally, if I was to answer that philosophically, I'd say if their spirit was locked in their body and they got cremated, I think they'd still be tied to those remains. Awesome, brother. Great and, answer. And, uh, I appreciate your uh, insight and your opinions on this kind of stuff. Um, it's been fun having you on, and I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, Jerry, man, it's, it's been my pleasure. Well, we're glad to have I you think- on, and, and maybe we can... Uh, have you on sometime again in the future if we've got some some questions that come up. Maybe we can do like a Facebook live stream or something where people can ask questions and, and you can give the uh, at least a religious point of view from, from your standpoint on some of this stuff. I think that would be fun. Yeah, man. I, I'd love to do that. I, um, I would really enjoy that. That'd be fun. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. You are a young guy. How old are you? You don't look, but you're like 22, 23 years old. <laughs> Jerry, I'm um, I'm 29. I do have a young face, so but I'm I'm 29. I'm still young, but I'm I'm not quite that yet. So awesome, Derek. Well, best of luck to you, brother. 
Thanks, man. I appreciate it. See, I told you it was going to be a crazy story. <laughs> no, I mean, we have the most awesome guests on this show. Yes, I just It's just hard to believe that we we are so lucky and blessed to get all these people on here. Because they all have fascinating stories. It is amazing. That's the the beauty of having a, a bigger audience is mm-hmm. we get, you know, so many people that, that want to be a part of it. And that's awesome. Yeah. It's a great feeling for sure. All right, guys. Thank you so much for bearing with us this week. And uh, we'll be back with something great next week. We love you guys. Hope you all have a blessed week.